Function Room 36, Murderous Maths with Jarton Poskett. Jarton Poskett is a maths book phenomenon, author of, among other things, the 15-book-long Murderous Maths series. A load of funny books for children about maths. They've been published in 25 countries around the world. We talk about lots of things, including duels, how a fencing teacher went looking for pie, Archimedes, the magic stall at York Market, and the importance of having your own lair. Jarton Poskett, you are very welcome to The Function Room. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, it's nice to be here. <laughs> this is our first synchronous meeting where both of us are in the virtual room at the same time. You already recorded very kindly a message for Matt's Week when you were over in Ireland for Matt's Week. And But what intrigued me about <laughs> the video is that you appear to have a lair and I really feel that's important in math. It's the room I've always dreamt of since I was about 10 years old, and here I am 57 years later, and I've yeah. got it. I'm surrounded by vintage keyboards since. Uh, I've got a nice piano. I've got probably half a dozen guitars, which I can't play. I mean, I try and play. I pretend I can play, but I can't really, you know, not compared to some of the talent I've seen in Dublin and stuff. And, um, yeah, it's my playroom. And then I have a tiny, tiny little desk at which I'm supposed to write my books. But even yeah. that now is covered with more wires and synths and stuff like that. And so I have just about enough room to move my mouse. That's all that's left. <laughs> is is it an underappreciated uh, thing in maths, the need for a layer? We need we need more layers. Are we in sterile uh, uh, whiteboarded office offices and what we actually need is to be surrounded by clutter and stuff? That is a really interesting question. I, I mean, I, I don't know any what you might call serious hardcore mathematicians terribly well. But what I do know is obviously this, all you need for maths is a pen and a bit of paper and you can be anywhere. That's the beauty of it, actually. I mean, you look at science, you have to have a hadron collider or something like that. But with maths, it's a pen and a piece of paper. And that's all you need to do tricks to have fun, do puzzles a lot. So what individual mathematicians have, I don't know. I mean, I've got lots of toys and packs of cards and things like that, maybe tucked away in their drawers in their little pristine offices. They've got all this stuff. I don't know. I really don't know. You'll have to speak to somebody who knows. <laughs> uh, the music, musical instruments you have uh, clustered around you and synthesizers yeah. and um, cables and then obviously a box of stuff, just general stuff, I presume, or several well, boxes of that. Uh, puzzles. I, I must have York Market. Sadly, it's not there anymore. But for 20 years, I live in York in England. The market there was had a magician selling tricks and props I have a cupboard full of the stuff I bought from him, weird little tricks and dodgy packs of cards and things like that. And uh, I'm fascinated by anything like that or a little clever puzzle, yeah. Uh, Tons and tons of junk. If anybody wants to see the music gear, um, my books are all entitled Murderous Maths, and there's a Murderous Maths video channel. And half yeah. the videos are, are things I did during lockdown, little things, how to fold papers into a bit of paper into a pentagon and so on. But half the videos are done using all my synthesizer gear. In fact, I just put up a new one last week. It's called The D-Fam, The Edge, and The Happy Pig, and it's the strangest music video I've ever done. <laughs> <laughs> What I really want to hope is that the magician used to buy all those tricks from at York Market, that you went there one day 
and their stall had completely disappeared and nobody had any memory of them ever being there. And it was only, you were the only customer. It's almost what happened because he had a very regular clientele. He used to go down there every Saturday morning and he had the best name. His name was Ulysses. That was his real given name, Ulysses. Ulysses Herring was his name. Lovely, lovely (laughs) old gent. Cracking bloke. Went down there one Saturday morning and he was gone. And we thought what had happened and he was getting to be an old gentleman who thought maybe he'd got poorly. But then three weeks later, a young man came back and he said, uh, basically, he, uh, he's retired. I bought all his stock and so I'm back. But he, wow. he didn't, unfortunately, stay terribly long. He started to work cruise ships. But, yes, it was one morning. A lot of us went down there to sort of see what the latest thing was and suddenly, poof. Wow. <laughs> yeah, the what, guy had gone. <laughs> what, a, what a name um, for a title of a uh, book, Ulysses Herring. It I is, mean, it's just it? yeah. <laughs> both – both uh, aspects of the name uh, evoke long journeys. Oh, yes. And it also makes you just kind of think, you know, it's not like a, I don't want to say a common name because I don't want to upset anybody listening who might have the name I'll say. But when you call Ulysses Herring, it just draws a picture of somebody, doesn't it? An old wizard or a, a sea captain or something. It's incredible, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And in fairness to yourself, Charton Poskett, both in the pronunciation or if people hear it and if they see it written, it's it's an amazing name. Uh, it's spelled K-J-A-R-T-A-N. No, I haven't met many Jartans. It's, I've only it sounds ever met very, very old English or Norse. Is that right? Yes, that's right. And uh, I say I, I've only ever met one other one myself. I was at the Edinburgh Book Festival signing books and a little lad must have been about eight years old. He came up and uh, I said, oh, what's your name? He went, Hian. I went, really? How do you spell that? And he said, same as you spell yours. Looking at me, yeah. Mr. Author, can't you spell your own name? <laughs> it turns out this, this little lad was Norwegian, his mum explained. And yeah. uh, in that part of the world where the name originates, uh, the KJ at the front becomes a sort of hia sort of sound. So he was calling himself, I think, Hjarn. And yet we've always pronounced it Jarton because when my mother found the name in the book, she just knocked off the K. Like a lot of other words with silent K, such as knickers, she knocked yeah. off the K and just read out what was left. And so I've always been jarting. Brilliant. Um, I could actually talk for the whole hour about uh, names, but I, we should probably talk a little bit about your work. Tell us about uh, Murderous Maths. Um, why is it called Murderous Maths? And who's it for? And right. What? Uh, Three questions in one go, sorry. Sorry, I'm talking over you, beg your pardon. So so keen to talk to you, I can't shut up. uh, (laughs) The way Murderous Mass came about was it really started off, in fairness, with the Horrible History series uh, written by Terry Deary, and he must have written the first of those, oh, must have been nigh on 30, even longer than that, 30 years ago. And the Horrible History series very quickly captured kids' imagination. And we're looking at the probably 8- to 10-year-old readers And uh, as soon as they started doing well, the people at Scholastic, the publishers in the UK, got a very good friend of mine, Nick Arnold, to start writing horrible science books. And whoosh, they took off too. So they looked for further subjects. And uh, at the time, I'd done a couple of puzzle books for Scholastic. And they said, would you like to do a book called Murderous Maths? Just a single one book. And I turned it down. I said, honestly, I can't imagine any young person going into a bookshop and asking for a book about sums. I just can't see it. And they said, well, we've got a series crashing computers. We could have murderous mass, uh, gobsmacking galaxy. They had all these other crazy titles. 
And I sat down and I thought, well, as long as I'm allowed to put a few jokes and puzzles into it, I don't want it to look like a mass book, then we can probably have some fun with this. So I wrote the first murderous mass book. And within a year, I think it was in 25 different languages. And so uh, I thought that went well. <laughs> yeah. And that's how it started. Uh, I mean, it's, it's it grabs the attention. Uh, I'm looking forward to kind of introducing my girls to it. Uh, how old are you? They're six and eight. So all right. um, well, they're, well, they're all set up for it. Just about coming into the yeah lower reaches. In fact, it depends, yeah. obviously, on what the child's particular interest is. I do have feedback from people as young as six who picked up new books and like them. So anyway, yeah. good. You're my target audience. Let's be having you. Good. Very good. <laughs> uh, give, me, give me the sales pitch. But even, do you know, I mean, what I like about the title is you're just – like it's having fun with the word maths. It there's alliteration in it. It it's maths as a instead of a instead of a forbidding subject, it becomes part. Yes, of, I, was, I was given that title. It's the only part yeah. of the murderous maths books I didn't like. It said, "Could I write yeah. a book on murderous maths?" And yeah. The kind of challenge I had initially was, of course, horrible histories is full of you know amazing characters and battles and dreadful things going on and horrible diseases people used to have. And that horrible science, of course, has got explosions and poisons. There's also a horrible geography series with the sort of raging oceans and volcanoes and stuff. With murderous mass, two plus three makes five. Yeah. No one's actually, you know, murdered. And so it gave me a bit of a license to invent characters, whether it was aliens or barbarians or whatever, the kind of gangsters, and make almost like comic stories. But it, it involved numbers and stuff that way. And so in many ways, I had a much freer reign in that the, the kind of stories and the backgrounds I put into the books, the characters, they're all comic stuff, they're all fiction, so I could take them wherever I wanted. As long as the sums worked, as long as the sums were okay, then I could do whatever else I liked, and that's why it was such fun to write them. But it 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 shows the importance of story as a way of getting anything across, doesn't it? I mean, maths equations are sentences and... You know, formulas you could say are paragraphs, but there's a story there. If, if we if we could figure out, as you have done, the way, and more so even in school, the way of illustrating that this thing, even though it's you know it's got symbols you don't recognize, uh, but then so are hieroglyphs, and we love stories about finding out about. Egyptian temples, uh, that that there is a story there. Yeah, there? No, I think you make a very fair point. In fact, every maths equation, you have to treat it, you know, every maths question, treat it as a little puzzle. You know, two plus three makes five is obviously nice and simple. But it's got a start, it's got a middle, and it's got a happy ending when you get the answers. So every little bit of maths, if presented in the right way, is a little story. And, you know, the trick is... Oh, uh, what I try to do in my books is dress it up, you know, add a few characters and a bit of fun along the way. And that's what we did. And and in, even in real life, our, our our rather real life myth, wasn't there the story of the uh, the Greek who was like this uh, follower of Pythagoras who was supposed to have found the square root of two and the Greeks were so scared of a number that was neither odd nor even, they had him killed because yeah, he, he was after discovering a dark secret. Yeah, I think it was Hippasus. It's quite interesting that he challenged Pythagoras, you know, and Pythagoras, um, back in the day, Pythagoras did everything with fractions, but there's no fraction that is the square root of two. For instance, you know, one and a half multiplied by itself doesn't make two. Uh, one and a third doesn't. That There is no number that multiplied by itself that you can write as a fraction will 
uh, exactly make two. And uh, yeah, this is a huge and quite frightening mystery to all these um, ancient people who'd sat down and worked out the rules of sums and numbers and lines, and they thought they had it all, but they hadn't. <laughs> As a writer, do you um, are you fascinated by the history of maths and what's going through people's minds when they uh, when they discover something? Because often we just you know. Euler did this, and then he did this, and then Gauss did this, and then he did the next yes. thing. But, but I, I don't know. We don't, we don't always get a picture of their motivation, do we? Can I just stop you there? You're really yeah. well read on this. I'm terribly impressed. I think you know more than <laughs> I do. I'm going to be interviewing you. <laughs> like, no, I, I I run out of road pretty quickly. Don't worry. So, so superficial. Very, very honest of you. Uh, yeah. Now, the ancient guys, what I really like about the stuff they did, there's a bloke called Thales, T-H-A-L-E-S. And he was the guy that uh, he said, if you draw a semicircle, and then if you put a little dot anywhere around the curve of the semicircle and then join it to the two corners of the semicircle, you'll get a right angle. If you can imagine yeah. a triangle drawn inside the semicircle, the angle at the curve part will always be a right angle. And although people have known that, I believe he was the first person actually proved it. And based on that, I mean, everything, you know, architecture, sending rockets to the moon is based on some of these fundamental bits of geometry. And what I love about that is that the guy at the time is very clever how he managed to prove it, bearing in mind he was just probably drawing lines in the sand with a stick to prove it. But he changed the world. But at the end of it, in our sort of 21st century, looking back on it, it all seems so obvious now. And so we yeah. can understand what he did, but at the same time, we can understand the genius behind it. And that's why I like looking back to these old guys, because there's people now doing incredible things in maths, but they're talking about massive new number fields and stuff like that, and little squiggly lines that look like insects. And most of us will never, ever understand what they're talking about. But back with the ancient Greeks, we can appreciate what they did. It's really important that a society allows people to go and do stuff that doesn't have an immediate point, isn't it? We can't all go do the sensible job. There has to be jobs where it's just, look, I need to sit in a room for my entire career and figure stuff out. And I don't know whether it'll be useful or not. You're driving me nuts now. There's a mathematician and I've never been good at names. I think he's G.H. Hardy. And I believe he was at Cambridge University. But he used to pride himself, pure mathematician, that nothing he'd ever done during his entire career was ever going to be of any use to anybody. This is him, you know, playing with numbers and this, that and the other. And in fact, what he did do was a lot of work on prime numbers. And that became the basis of the coding system that you use when you put your credit card online. You know, if you put your phone or your PIN number and you buy something through Amazon or eBay or something, and your computer will encode your card, send the information across, and nobody can intercept it apart from the people at the far end. That coding system, the RSA code system, is very clever, but it's based on some of this guy's maths. And there he was busy bragging away that nothing I do will ever be of any use. And in fact, sorry, mate, you're wrong. We're using this every <laughs> single day of our lives. And so that would have come as a rather nasty shock to him if you ever found yeah. one. <laughs> he, would, he would be so disappointed by the vulgar utility of Absolutely. his work. Absolutely. Oh, because you do phrase it well, yeah, vulgar utility. <laughs> That's, that sums up me with a credit card on eBay, I'll tell you, vulgar utility. <laughs> I just buy more music gear, you know. <laughs> yeah. I uh, Well, you'll need a bigger room at some point what areas do you have you covered over the over the years in murderous maths like who are the who are the people 
the real life people that have kind of popped up in, in uh, fictional the, situations. Real life people uh, kind of confined to a few little bits here and there. I mean, I refer to them during the course of the books. Um, when I wrote the first book, there was a section on some real murderous mathematicians. In a, I'm sorry, I don't have the names in front of me. I mean, there's a very, very clever uh, French bloke, only a young guy. He died in his 20s after a duel. And when he was a wild and crazy fella, but he was one of the guys that cracked open algebra equations. And all of a sudden, wow, is that how you solve that stuff? And he'd done all this, then he picked a fight, and then he got shot or something. I mean, completely mad people. But in terms of the topics that I covered, the first Murderous Mass book was a dip-in book, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, just fun little facts and things. Then when they asked me to write a second book, I said, well, everything I think that's any good has gone into the first book. And they were leaning on me because they said, listen, we've sold so many of the first one, please write a second. So I staggered around and I found a load more stuff, did the second book. And all of a sudden they're saying, right, how many more of these books can you write? And I said, right, we're going to have to theme this. And I remember I, <laughs> I, went to, I went to a cafe in York, which had a pinball table. And I've always liked pinball tables. And I remember sitting playing this pinball table for an hour and said, I'm not going to leave this pinball table until I've worked out how to write this book series. And sure enough, an hour later, I, I, I went back and I contacted the publishers and they said, what we need to do is I need to do a book, which is the very basic stuff, the, the essential arithmetic book. And so we'll make it fun. But for people who are coming in at the bottom of level of mass, I'll teach them how to add, multiply, subtract, divide. And we'll put in a load of tricks and stuff to show it can be fun. It can be easy. Then once you've read that book, you should be able to understand all the others. Because the problem I had is that some of the later books, one of them deals with trigonometry. And when you're writing books for, for people of the age, particularly sort of like around 10 year old, you, you can't explain the basics of how to add and subtract numbers at the front of every book. You have to have already got that one in place. With history, you look at, look at the Tudors and you can look at the Stuarts and you can look at the Windsors if you like. They're all separate. They're all standalone subjects. With maths, it builds on each other. And so the arithmetics and the following book, the fractions book, mean and vulgar bits, they were basically the two core books. And when the publishers said, yes, you can do those two, and then thereafter do whatever you like, that suddenly opened the floodgate. And that's how come I ended up writing, I think, 15 murderous mass books. Yeah, that was a long chat, wasn't it? <laughs> Coming up in the second half, we'll talk about the importance of finding some sort of gateway into maths and also about Jarton's favourite mathematician whose whole life work was for nothing. But it's uh, it's an important point about, like, for, I say for a lot of people, maths feels like a conversation that started before they came into the room and you're kind of, you're in there and you're listening to people talking yeah. and you don't interrupt and you don't reveal how little you know. Yeah. And <laughs> it's, it's, it's really important that, Mass you week. place, yeah, where you, know, you can. Mass week every year at Mass week yeah. in Dublin, they have the Hamilton lecture, and they'll have some important, famous person in the mass world who come over and go to one of the wonderful venues in Dublin. Uh, where were this year? I think we've been to the Marsh Library in the past. This year it was in, oh, it's in Trinity, and it's just to be in the building is such a treat. And you sit there, and then the guys at the front chatting away. And everybody's sitting there stroking their chins and nodding and stuff like that. And at the end, everybody walks out and going, Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> what was all that then? Although I have to say this year, I think myself and my, uh, my good friend, 
Paul, who I was sitting next to, we both walked out. We both thought, do you know, we understood most of that. It's one of our best years we've ever had listening to this. Good. Maybe <laughs> maybe you're finally getting it after well, 57 well, well, years. You're completely right. We're all bluffing. We're all bluffing. <laughs> yeah. But no, it's quite right what you say in that um, – I've got a lovely friend in York, and he's a clever guy. He's run his own company for years, but he'd seen I'd written the mass books, and he said he wanted to go on the specialised business course. But he said, I, I can add, I can subtract, just about multiply, dividing, not a chance. He said, because when I was at school, I was just messing around in the couple of lessons where they taught us how to do that. I've never caught up, and it's mm-hmm. held me back for 25 years. So I lent him one of the books that I'd written, you know, for eight-year-olds, and this guy at the time must have been mid-30s. And uh, he came back and he said, you know, I've read that book and I've got into this business course and I've absolutely sailed through it. And he, it's just a missing link, a little bit of maths that yeah. had never been explained properly. And it held him back, although he'd, say, run a company, but he hadn't achieved what he really wanted to do purely because he'd missed, been messing around in a couple of maths lessons. So as you say, it's like walking into a room where a conversation's already started. You have to have the basics. That's why when I devised the series, I said, look, I cannot explain how to do basic sums in every single book. We'll have one or two core books that deal with that. Then thereafter, everything stems on from it. Rounding off numbers. I must have explained that probably 15 times in 15 books. It's so important. It's just one yeah. of those things you have to understand. Anyway, <laughs> that's how it works. Just on that, a thing I started using recently is on Reddit, explain like I'm five. And you put in, you can put in square roots or powers or Fourier series or any mad stuff. And people will make a conscious effort to take it back to basics. And it's the first time since forever that I've finally started to understand things that I could use. You know, sometimes it's like, like it's like driving. I I've no idea how an engine works. I'm just driving it. But if the end, if the car breaks down and there's no one to fix it, I'm screwed. And so there's a certain lack of confidence there where you don't know what or fundamentally how a thing works because it's you're you're standing on this layers of assumed information. Yeah. Uh, so I, it's so it's so important, and I think I'm sure that those particular basics books that that are in the Murders Math series are well thumbed. By people whose whose thumbs well, are you know, far older. Thing when somebody comes up and asks me to sign a book, and obviously it's nice if they just bought it and it's pristine, but when it looks like it's been read for years and it's been dropped in the bath and there's a couple of pages missing, I, that, those are the ones I really like to sign. I think that one's had a bit of life. Is that someone's enjoyed that? <laughs> it's um, very pleasing. <laughs> very good. I, I was struck by the way that uh, there was a lovely link there. You were talking about you went and played pinball for an hour to try yeah. and come up with an approach to figure out how to write these books. And then shortly after, as you were talking about William Rowan Hamilton, the Hamilton lecture, who, and he was on a walk, wasn't he? He was just walking along the canal when he came up with something. In Dublin, yeah, yeah. And then he scribbled on a bridge. He came up with this kind of weird little formula, the Quaterian formula, and then he scratched it out on this bridge in Dublin. And every year they re-walk, the Hamilton walk. Then there's a plaque on this bridge and uh, sort of showing this equation he came up with. You see, I've had that explained to me. I don't know how many times the Quaternions, no, not a chance, sorry. (laughs) I I know what it's used for. It's all to do with um, the the maths involved. If you play a complex video game with great graphics in the background, somehow, and I don't know how, but his bit of maths is what helps the computer realise the accuracy of the graphics and gives good three-dimensional detection. 
three-dimensional effects in pictures. How a little bit of math scratched on a bridge in Dublin can suddenly improve video games across the world, I don't know. Do you know what? I don't even care. I think it's just fantastic. It's, I love it. <laughs> the fact it happens is just magic. <laughs> well, I, I, that is, um, that's something I point I'm always saying is that the, the magic of it, like we, we love fantasy things where dragons can do this or maguses can, uh, or magus, I don't even know how to pronounce that word, can just magically make something appear. And yet we ignore or scoff at the incredible power of just some symbols scratched in a wall uh, and where that can lead to, I, I guess, because it's not, it's, it's, it's a little bit magic, but then there's a lot of stuff happens in between. Well, what um, he did with these equations, he, he opened the door, really. Uh, I mean, to take it back to a much simpler level, it's like you mentioned earlier on the square root of two. And uh, the square root of two is a number that you can't actually write down. You can see it. If you yeah. have a table that measures one metre square, the distance from uh, diagonally across between two corners, that is the square root of two. You can see it, but you can't actually write it down. It's quite a frightening concept to sort of take on board, but once you've got it on board and understand what that's about, then you can kind of move forward a little bit, you know, and uh, think, right, square root of two, even though I can't write it down, I can use it for this, I can use it for that. So it's just a matter of opening doors, like with a few scribbles, and that's, that's what old Hamilton did with his equation. Yeah, and it's but it's so hard, isn't it, to let go of certainty and go, I'm going to just accept this without being able to, uh, in you know, it's so like your brain way, yeah. it doesn't can't do it. It's like when people say five, you know, the fifth dimension or six dimensions. Oh, like, I know, I but is is it a box? Yeah. Yeah. Is it what is it? Is it a circle? Um, you know, one of my favourite jokes is. Uh, how does a pure mathematician imagine a 12-dimensional space? The answer is he imagines an n-dimensional space, then he lets n equal 12. <laughs> I, I, I'm laughing. <laughs> <laughs> it's a completely stupid joke. I mean, a lot of people think, what are you talking about? But, you know, if you're tuned into that kind of rubbish, then you'll like it. <laughs> well, I mean, like, I think it's it's a, an immediate, uh, you, you walk into a crowded room, tell that joke, and the people who laugh at it are your, they're your people forever, you know. Um, so it's a way of separating the the wheat from the other wheat. Uh, who's your <laughs> who's your favorite mathematician? Is there somebody whose life yes, grabs yeah, you? Um, the the um the one you the the guy you mentioned earlier was Galois. By the way, I was doing a little bit oh, of thank, um, thank thank you for finding the black Ev Everest Galois, who was doing a little bit of on the fly Wikipedia. He was a political firebrand. Yeah, and the duel, I think, was uh, it was related. I mean, his final, he, he's had a number of run-ins with people anyway. Um, you just Google this or had somebody pass you a piece of paper? Or do you happen to know that? No, that one is Googled, definitely. Don't worry. Um, <laughs> I feel good about I've, it. I've been <laughs> silently, silently keying in something. Uh, I, I've also, just as we're talking, uh, explain like I'm five, what is a quaternion? And uh, there's Are a paragraph there. I'm, I'm sort of getting it, but, you know... <laughs> You're a clever man than me, I'll tell you, Cole. You had to be there. Uh, so, yes, favourite mathematician. Sorry, I'm, I'm uh, blabbing over you. Well, there's so there's so many. I mean, contemporarily, it may be an obvious one, but Andrew Wiles, uh, uh, the guy that... Uh, do you know about Fermat's last theorem? I've heard of it. Yeah, um, Fermat, Fermat's last theorem is... Uh, uh, the Pythagoras thing is A squared plus B squared equals C squared, okay? 
But what they thought was, are there any numbers where you can get uh, uh, two cubes added together and make a cubed number? So A cubed plus B cubed equals C cubed, or A, uh, a to the power of fourth plus B to the power of fourth equals C to the power of fourth. And they reckon, no, you can't. You can only actually do that kind of thing with uh, adding two different squared numbers makes a third square number. But nobody managed to prove it. And back in the day, oh, I think this guy was a French customs officer, a bloke called Fermat. But he had a knack of suddenly solving these impossible mathematical things with a couple of lines of just, whoa, amazing brilliance. And he wrote in the margin of a book he was reading, I've just worked out a proof to prove that you can't do this, you know, A cubed plus B cubed equals C cubed. And I've, I've written it in the margin of a book. And uh, that's all he said. And nobody's managed to prove this thing since. And everybody's wondering, what was that scribble he wrote in the margin of the book? People have been speculating for hundreds of years about this. Yeah. And then this particular thing, it's called Fermat's Last Theorem. A lot of people have been trying to prove it using other methods, you know, because the scribble in the book wasn't going to happen. And uh, Andrew Wiles, a mathematician, I believe he was at Cambridge, uh, he basically spent seven years locked in a dark room, struggling away using mass that's only been devised in the last, you know, 30, 40 years. And finally, he proved it and it involved a series of lectures to a referee who sat there and he analysed every point he made and finally said, yes, I think you've proved this. And so Andrew Wiles, modern day hero, proved Fermat's last theorem. We, you and I would not understand the first line of his proof and it goes on for pages and pages and pages. But the fact that the guy sat down and did this, and I think that's great. What I love, the mathematicians are the ones that take a problem and then just worry it to death. In fact, yeah. the one I really wanted to mention to you, and I've got his name written down because this guy gets it right. He is called Ludolf von Kuhlen. And it's back in the day when they were trying to work out a value for pi, which is the, dia uh, sorry, the circumference of a circle divided by the diameter. And right back in the days of Archimedes, they were trying to get a perfect value of pi. This guy spent his entire life, his life's work, and he managed to work out pi to 35 decimal places. And he thought, that's brilliant. Nobody will need more than that. You can calculate the edge of the universe with that value of pi. That was his life work. And yeah. just as he was nearing the end of his life, people like Isaac Newton had come up with ways to calculate the value of pi to infinite def de <laughs> decimal yeah. places. So this poor guy spent his entire life's work thinking that value of pi will be all humanity ever needs. And in fact, for many years afterwards, hundreds of years afterwards, pi in Germany was called, it was actually called the Ludolfian number after him. But the trouble is the guy's entire life work was shattered because suddenly people had thought, no, we can actually... Uh, compute pi forever and i felt just terribly sorry for the bloke <laughs> <laughs> i know it, i wonder is it a thing that well, haunts... it's a mathematical hero i like him because he just did it and he just yeah <laughs> i've just i've just looked him up here now he also taught fencing he was a man who taught people how to fence so keeping with the dueling uh theme oh, there seems to be a lot of uh there seems to be a lot of uh, fighting going on. So there's lots of murder. Uh, the more, as soon as you start that scratching. a great day. It was lethal. Yeah. If you sat down yeah. in the library and you came up with something that was really clever and you'd be scribbling it away and you think, wait till I show everybody this. Whoa, I'm going to be really famous and stuff. And money came with it. And, you know, the people mm. would have you at their court and they would feed you and stuff. 
somebody would come look over your shoulder go hey that's a bit good next thing you get whacked on the head and they've pinched your piece of paper this used to happen they used to yeah. really, really fight tooth and nail over the sort of like new ideas and breakthroughs and of course what mathematician was it archimedes he died telling somebody your some soldier had attacked the city that's right yes it was uh, and you're, was you're stand, what is it you're standing on my triangles or something wasn't yeah, it? yeah get off my diagrams and and the show, the soldiers kind of came in so you can't talk to me like that and just just killed this incredibly clever guy and the soldier himself even though he was an opposing force to uh, the archimedes side the soldier himself i, I believe was sort of taken aside and dealt with you know they had so much respect for him on both sides that uh, they, they were mortified. The army were mortified that their soldier had killed this great Archimedes. So the soldier was in big trouble. <laughs> Is there an area of maths then in or out of your books that just absolutely fascinates you because of its weirdness? I've, uh, weirdness, I don't know. I've always liked probability. I've always yeah. liked, you know, uh, the sort of chances of packs of cards. You get a pack of cards, 52 cards, and you shuffle it up. And then you turn over the, the top two cards. What's the chance that they're a pair, a pair of sevens or a pair of queens? I mean, there's a lovely answer to that. The answer to that is one in 17. The number 17 suddenly jumps out at you there. It's exactly one in 17 is the chance. But anything regarding probability, uh, some of the numbers get ridiculously big. But it's just, I, I, I don't know. I, I, it's always appealed to me, you know, that sort of luck. Can you beat the odds and this kind of thing? Yeah. And then... Um, in fact, the first murderous mass book had a chapter called Do You Feel Lucky, which is, I don't know, sort of about 2,000-word chapter. And one of the people reviewing the book before it was published said, this is a really interesting chapter, but you need to just give a bit more depth to it. And so I took that material aside and I kept it, hoping it would come in one day. And at the time, I had no idea there's going to be more than one murderous mass book. But when the series developed, the sixth murderous mass book was Do You Feel Lucky? And so that one little chapter that was 2,000 words became 22,000 words. And uh, you shouldn't really have a favourite, but that's probably my favourite of the murderous mass books, the the cards and the coins and the dice and all those sort of things. So that's my favourite area, yeah. And I suppose the thing about probability is it's almost a public service that people understand it because it's the area in which we're often tricked the most isn't oh, it because we have yes. our, our our inbuilt bias our fear our um sense of risk is can be off because we we make assumptions about about what are the chances of something happening or uh, or the way we interpret statistics about, about a bloke i don't know if, the, if it might have been in ireland or very probably the uk i suppose but somebody buying lottery tickets and he'd been told that your chance of winning even anything, 10, 10 pounds, 10 euros on the lottery, was going to be about one in 20. So roughly, if you buy 20 lottery tickets, at least one of them should win something. And he bought, I don't know, hundreds of lottery tickets and never won a single thing. And so he tried to sue the lottery companies saying that you've been misleading people. I've never won. And they're trying to explain to him, say, yeah, <laughs> you haven't won. Every time you buy a ticket, the odds are still the same. It's still, you yeah. know, one in 20. And just because you bought lots of tickets, it doesn't mean to say the odds of the individual ticket are, you know, going to be different. It's like tossing a coin. You've got an even chance of heads or tails. But if you toss a coin 99 times and it lands heads, 
a lot of people think, well, it's got to be tails soon. It's not because the coin can't remember. The coin will just come down however it's going to come down. And it's amazing how many people find that hard to, hard to understand. And it can be very misleading as well. Yeah, because our sense of fair play are that, you know, things should turn our way are often rooted maybe in, I don't know, religion or fate yeah, or the gods or, or something. Our, yeah. our luck must turn. Mm, yeah, I, I mean, that starts to move away from the odds itself. It starts to become sort of a, an instinct and a belief. And quite often, as you say, it's misplaced. So it's, uh, I like to stick to the numbers. And the other thing is people say, do I gamble? And I might have, you know, one pound or two pounds on, particularly on the six nations. I always bet on Ireland on the six nations, by the way. You can't lose. <laughs> but <laughs> never much, mainly because I know if I started to put, you know, big numbers on, I'd be too uncomfortable with it and uh, I just can't do it. I just have to keep it very, very small because, I don't know, instincts aren't good. The people that win are the people that set the odds because they always make sure there's something for them. <laughs> I know. Um, for uh, you're, you know, you're in this game um, a good while now. What would be your advice to parents, educators with uh, children that we don't? You don't want to kind of say, "Look, maths is cool," or "Maths is important." You really need this as as being like dogmatic positions yeah that is but just that, that, that so that people are still so that children are curious and not afraid of maths and don't mind being i, I, I do loads of, i do loads and loads of math talks and the first couple of minutes i don't do numbers at all i mean unless it really is a ready cued on mass audience but generally a school audience or a family audience there'll be some people there who didn't want to come and see you if you're going to talk about maths. And so I, I come on, and for the first two or three minutes, I, well, I say I try to do some funny stuff. What I do do is I talk about um, uh, I talk about the old mathematicians and some of the old characters because it is interesting and it's not numbers. And so you've got to sort of try and bring people in through that way. But once you're sitting at home and you've got, say, a young person who can't be bothered with numbers, it might sound nasty thing, but uh, get a handful of coins, put some coins on a table and just, uh, we're talking really basic arithmetic here, get them to understand coins because coins and money, everybody knows it's important. Mm. You don't want to feel you've gone into a shop and you've, you know, you've got the wrong change or anybody's cheated you or whatever. You need to know how coins work. And uh, most kids, however anti-numbers they might be, they will want to know that they're on top of money. And so with a selection of coins, there's any number of tricks and games and things that you can play. And all of a sudden you're working with numbers and that opens the door. That's always my advice is, is get a handful of coins out. <laughs> what are you doing now? I mean, I presume you're going to do this for the rest, for the next 60 years. <laughs> what, me boxing for the next 60 years? Good Lord. <laughs> yeah, I think I could do. I've been enjoying it just fine, actually. <laughs> Yeah, I've um, what am I doing? I spend most of my time planning pub quizzes, actually. But there again, I was over to Dublin for Mouse Week, and uh, I was doing a talk uh, yesterday. Uh, I still do quite a few appearances, just chatting away and showing off the tricks and the bits of fun. Uh, I've got a couple of books I'm tidying up. I'm sort of retired, really, Colin. So I'm so fortunate I get to do exactly what I want. But I do have one book. If I only have one more book that comes out again, it's called Mass Mazes. And uh, what it is, it's a, well, it's a maze book, but you head along a little path and there'll be a sign. For instance, the sign might say three times six. 
and then the path will split maybe three ways and there'll be holes at the end of each branch of the path and at the bottom of each hole there'll be three answers so if the sign says three times six the answers might say 13 18 23 and you have to drop down the right hole and if you drop down the right hole, then the path continues and then the maze will take you all the way through the book. It's, it's the math maze. Yeah. And yeah. I came up with this idea for a book about 10 years ago. And uh, you can't just send it as an email. Every time I want someone to look at the book, I have to get a copy and I have to bang holes in bits of paper and post it. But finally, I have a publisher, which I'm hoping is going to produce this book. It's an expensive book to produce, but it looks gorgeous. The artwork's great. So I have to say, finalizing this book and getting this book onto a shelf has been a labor of love for 10 years, but we're nearly there. So that at the moment is the most exciting thing I've got going on. And also, I do hope that everybody looks at it, will look at this mass maze book and go, oh, that was clever. <laughs> <laughs> That's your uh, 35 digits of pi. Uh, Did you know it is? Uh, Isn't that funny? <laughs> yes, it, it's it's the equivalent of my thirty-five digits of pi. Yeah, I, I mean the idea itself. Once I come up with it, was fairly straightforward. The trick was actually packaging and selling it, and then also. As I say, I didn't need a publisher who really, really believed in the book because to put it together is a complicated thing. But I've got friends down in Bath in England who have been working on this, and they even flew over to uh, they flew to Los Angeles uh, in the summer, where there's a publisher there. Hopefully, they're going to raise some money through these people in Los Angeles. So it's quite exciting, isn't it? <laughs> Very good. Off to LA, ex- uh, Hollywood, Hollywood beckons. <laughs> I personally don't need to. I, I personally don't need to go over there. I've heard it must be a wonderful thing. It's not for me. I only go on a plane once a year, and that's to come to Dublin for Mass Week Ireland. That's the only time I go on a plane. <laughs> a good choice, uh, Jarton. It's been a pleasure uh, talking to you in the function room. Looking forward to introducing Murderous Mats to the O'Regan household. And uh, thanks for coming into the function room. No, it's great. Your little lass is eight years old. So hopefully uh, there is a power of 10 mass murderous mass books, which is a reasonable price. And if she gets in there, one of them is the arithmetics book. And so having read that, she'll understand all the others and she'll be cleverer than you. (laughs) I think that's already happened, actually. Jarton. Thanks so much to Jarton Poskett there. And I wish him the best of luck with his final magnificent opus, about maths mazes and the way in which you can just help anyone with their times tables if you make a book that's colourful enough with holes in the pages for exploring down various tunnels and rabbit holes. That's it for the function room this week. Uh, We'll be back very soon. I won't say next week. You never know. Life happens. Uh, But with another interesting topic Thanks for listening. I'm at Colm O'Regan on Twitter or the podcast is at Function Room Pod. If you get a chance, please share, like, rate, whatever you want with the pod. Use it as insulation. I don't mind. But for now, mind yourself. Bye bye.